Welcome to another edition of Global Investment Leaders. Hello, and welcome to the second episode in our How They Did It subseries. I'm Brad Mook, Managing Director of Investments at Rosemont, and your host. In this episode, we take a close look at another successful management buyout. My guest is Scott Preby, Managing Partner of Geneva Capital Management, which bought itself out of Janice Henderson in early 2020. Geneva is a U.S. equity manager that was founded in 1987 and is based in Milwaukee with roughly $5 billion in assets under management in small, SMID, and mid-cap quality growth strategies. Geneva's story is interesting in that it has experienced several ownership transitions, including succession from its founders to its next-generation leaders, sale of the company to Henderson Global Investors, the merger of its parent company, Janus, and most recently, its management buyout from Janus Henderson. In some respects, the firm has come full circle and Scott has been an integral part of each stage. His perspective on becoming part of a larger firm, as well as executing an MBO to regain independence, is both interesting and enlightening. So without further delay, let's get to the conversation. Scott, thanks for joining me today. I'm so happy to have you here. My pleasure. Before we dive in, I'd like to just touch on the background. And for those who might not know Geneva Capital Management, if you could just tell us a little bit about it. You know, what does the firm do who does it do it for? How did it start? A little bit of background. Sure, sure. I'll just start at the beginning. Uh, so we were founded in 1987 uh, by Bill Preby, my father, and Amy Crone, his partner, who had worked together for a number of years at a, at a local bank in the trust department, doing essentially what uh, we do today. Uh, in the mid-80s, banks went through uh, some dislocations. They decided to test their metal, hang out their shingle, and started really on the high net worth side, but with an institutional mindset. Uh, we got into the institutional business really through emerging manager programs in the 90s and grew pretty steadily uh, through the 90s and into, into the 2000s. Uh, I was hired in the early 2000s, and uh, myself and my counterpart uh, were asked to become owners sort of in the mid-2000s. Uh, and at that juncture, we asked ourselves the question, who do we want to be when we grow up, right? It's the same question we ask our, our companies uh, with whom we invest, uh, what is the plan? And we decided to craft the plan to really institutionalize the business and focus on that segment of the market. Uh, and so while there was some hiccups, of course, going through the great financial crisis, we emerged, uh, invested in the business in terms of adding direct sales and just upgrading pretty much everything that we, we had in terms of software, uh, we, new, new trader, new office. And we embarked upon a path of growth from 2010, the end of 2010, where we were about a billion dollars to 2013, uh, where we were about $7 billion. And that's where that's where this story kind of leads in terms of our conversation it was at that juncture where we kind of took a look around and said, you know, how do we how do we get to the next level? Uh, we understood how to how to do what we did. Uh, but but really creating a platform for growth is, is, is different. And so that's where we had some introspection and said, should we look for a partner? Yep. So at that point, you were about 7 billion. You're a a long only growth equity specialist, right? So small cap, mid cap, some SMID. What does next level mean in terms of growth? What were you trying to achieve? At some point in capacity constrained, constrained strategies, you're out of room to grow. So what, what would the next leg have looked like? Yeah, at that point, we were mostly mid cap, uh, about $6 billion and about a billion dollars of small. We didn't have a SMID at that point. So it really was about adding 
additional diversification from a strategy and revenue perspective and in that client diver diversification. And so, uh, yes, we <laughs> quality growth. Uh, we were very predictable in terms of how we perform. We felt very good about our client base and, and uh, like where we were going. But obviously, as you mentioned, in capacity constrained strategies, you need to have additional revenue sources in the form of new strategies and vehicles, right? You want to make sure that you're staying on top of uh, being providing clients the types of vehicles that they need, and those are sort of ever-evolving. Yeah. Okay, so take us through the evolution then. What did you decide to do, and and then what happened from there? Well, we, needed, we knew we needed to find the right partner. We wanted to ensure that whomever it was was looking at us as a platform for growth, not some sort of an asset purchase. And so for us, it was very much a rifle shot approach, finding a partner versus shotgun. So we interviewed several different managers and ended up uh, selecting Henderson Global Investors out of London, who was sort of a amalgamation of boutiques. They didn't have any North American presence. They didn't have any manufacturing, so to speak, here. Did have a distribution office in Chicago, and they were very good at raising assets uh, in that office. And the plan uh, that we had crafted was to use us as a hub not only add additional strategies to us, but potentially longer term, add additional managers to us as well. Uh, one of the caveats we had with the deal, we didn't want anybody to lose their job. We felt that we had a fantastic team in our back office that was leverageable. They agreed. And so we embarked on a partnership in 2014. Uh, we closed in October of 14. And I will tell you for the first two years, it was it was great. We, we anticipated, and I'm sure as a asset allocator, you can appreciate this, for a year we were put on the shelf just to see what happened. Mm -hmm. uh, but we invested a, a, a pretty significant amount of the proceeds back into our strategies vis-a-vis -vis our mutual funds. And, and so, you sold the, sorry to interrupt, you sold the whole business, correct? We sold 100% of the business. That wasn't necessarily our choice. That was just how they did it for tax purposes. Okay. So we uh, embarked on this journey together. Uh, after a year of being on the shelf, we started to see some growth again, a few nine-finger mandates, some uh, singles and doubles as well. And then the unexpected happened, which unfortunately is a consequence of giving up your independence. And that is Henderson announced a merger with Janus, Janus out of Denver. So uh, most people know Janus, uh, good brand, a large US-based manager. This sort of upended our apple cart, so to speak, in terms of our plans and how we fit into this now new larger organization. Yeah. I remember, because um, you and I go back probably 10, 15 years from my time at SEI, and I remember those uh, steps in the evolution with Henderson and then Janice. Um, and so we certainly had our perspective on it. But what did your clients tell you when the Janice deal for Henderson happened? Initially, there was really a muted reaction. Some actually said, boy, they're a distribution machine. This could be good for you. And so we kind of took that back, saying, "Okay, this might not be this might not be so bad." Um, but as time went on, we realized, as there was effectively two headquarters, there's, there's there wasn't right. It was in London, but if you're in North America, Janice uh, in Denver uh, had a tremendous number of employees and teams. Uh, that's where the management was from North, for North America, and so we effectively fell under their umbrella. And in doing so, fell into the purview of U.S. management. And the tricky thing was, Janice has a very capable, very good team that does exactly what we do. The only difference being they're six times our size. Mm -hmm. Right. So at that point, did you? How, how did you think about 
Geneva's future. Um, you know, you, you you bought the farm out a couple of years ago, but what, were you thinking about that? You know, once the announcement took place, or did you think you could make a go under Janice and, and work it out? Not at that time. We didn't think about doing a buyout at that time. We were really trying to make it work, trying to leverage the resources, the global resources of the organization. But what became clear is internal competition for a very capable team that's very large, and I'm sure you can appreciate generates a fair amount of profit for the firm, sort of creates a confusing message from a distribution perspective. And that's where it started. We started to see some chinks in the armor, so to speak, where we started to see, boy, where, where are we going? What's the path? And then as you started to see management change, right? The people from Henderson that were there that were all sort of aligned in our deal started leaving the firm. So we're left not only underneath an entity in Denver that didn't necessarily agree to acquire us in the first place, that was the folks in London, the people that were our champions started to leave as well. And so we found ourselves on this island in Wisconsin, right, uh, by ourselves. But I will tell you, one of the key things that we did, and we did this purposefully, was to maintain our own brand, maintain our own independence, if you will, within this larger organization. So we never transitioned under their software system. We maintained our own trading. We kept all of our employees per their word. And, and I, I give them credit. They, they really did try to make this work. But at it, some point here, uh, it became very obvious our path was not of growth, but of just attrition. And in a human capital business, as people are looking for their career path, it's that's a very difficult proposition. Right, right, no doubt. Did they did they try to integrate Geneva? I mean, I, we we look at M and A in the asset management space, and you know, bigger firms trying to acquire scale, and ultimately, there's a strong. Uh, incentive to consolidate operations and branding and, um, you know, the amoeba kind of just takes over. I'm curious if they ever pushed that and you resisted or was it always agreed? Uh, with Henderson, that was going to be the long-term goal uh, over many years is that we would ultimately fall underneath the Henderson umbrella. And in fact, we took the first step in that journey, if you recall, Brad, right. at one point Henderson Geneva. But in the midst of that transition is when the Janus merger took place. And with Janus, they actually had a couple uniquely branded boutiques with Perkins and Intech. And so we basically said, just keep us like that. And they didn't disagree because, again, with that internal uh, competition, if you will, uh, they didn't want the same brand, uh, the same Janus brand, if you will, or Janus Henderson brand uh, with the same types of strategies. So that actually worked out in our favor, as luck would have it to effectively go back to just Geneva. And in fact, that's what people started calling it, just Geneva. Just Geneva, <laughs> I, I like that. Um, so so you, you sell to Henderson and you see the path um, and what the future is going to look like. That takes a left turn mid process as Henderson and Janice merge. And all of a sudden now you're in a completely different circumstance and really with no direct control over your your future and your circumstances certainly you have input and you have some leverage but you, you don't have ultimate control what i'm curious how then the buyout gets on the table did did you approach them and say we want out did they say look this doesn't make sense we you know think maybe you'd be better on your own go find a solution how, how does that conversation start it started with a conversation between Jose and myself, my partner, Jose Munoz. 
and acknowledging that this is not tenable, that this was going to be a very long, long, slow, you know, death from a thousand cuts over time. If you don't have flows coming in the front and you're, it's a game of attrition, it's just a very long, slow death. And at some point, we figured they would just shut us down, uh, just from simplistic purposes, right? On a $400 billion company, we're so small, it was almost insignificant. And so we approached the management team with an idea, right? It was that our clients that are still with us, because we hadn't had too many new relationships begin from the time that we sold to Henderson, a few, but not many. They hired us as an independent boutique. We think it would be in everybody's best interest if we return back to an independent boutique. The initial response, now keep in mind at the time, there are two CEOs of the company. The initial response was, no, the Henderson CEO still believes in you, still believes in the merger, sorry, the acquisition of Geneva. But if we slim down to one CEO, and if that CEO is the Janice CEO, you potentially could have a willing, uh, receptive audience. And so we kind of waited. I mean, the answer was no, but they said under the right circumstance, right? Wow. If these things happen, and he didn't have any predetermined or knowledge in terms of what was going to happen. And we were just talking about potential strategies and outcomes. And, and he, he basically just said it very matter of fact, look, if this happens, you, you might have a receptive audience in, in that situation. So we bided our time with, um, you know, just focused on our clients, focused on performance. Performance is good. We weren't a headache for the, for the company. We were kind of maintaining from an asset perspective and performance was strong. So given that they had, you know, dozens of teams now that they were looking after, we were sort of uh, out of sight, out of mind, uh, especially being in Wisconsin. And so another probably six to 12 months went by without any progress. And then, of course, we saw the announcement that Dick Weil took over and Formica was leaving. And we then contacted management once again and said, here's what you said before. <laughs> again. And, and to, to their word, and again, I, I'd like to give Janice Henderson credit because they did not only have the conversation, but were truly trying to find solutions uh, that, for the betterment of, of the company. Mm -hmm. Was the idea uh, of a buyout something that was water cooler talk within Geneva? Did you have to float it with people to make sure that they'd be happy with that outcome? Or was it pretty well understood that Geneva's just Geneva and just Geneva on its own, you know, could be as good or better than it is under Janice Henderson? It's an interesting question because I think I think everybody in our company has this entrepreneurial spark, and that was water cooler talk. Wouldn't it be great mm -hmm. if we could be independent once again? Wouldn't it be great if we could buy ourselves back and determine our own destiny? Wouldn't it be great if all this work that we're putting in for our clients that that we could longer term see some upside? Because keep in mind we had you know the senior people, and at that point we had already seen some retirements. The second generation coming up while experience still had a long runway in front of us from, from a career perspective. So that was very enticing, that thought. And so when the opportunity came up, this, this door was opened by slimming down to one CEO who, who happened to be sitting in Denver. We, we kind of jumped at the opportunity. Was, was there ever any trepidation? I, it, I mean, there can be safety in being part of a big organization 
backstop in terms of resources and you know maybe some economic cover. Long only equity has been facing headwinds from passive, from fees, et cetera. And there are a number of firms saying we can't survive as a single engine plane. And so we need to diversify our revenue streams, like you talked about earlier, um, or become part of something else. The decision that you had made earlier on. So was there ever a moment where all of a sudden the doors open and you say, okay, we got to jump out of this plane. And I, you know, I, I don't know if my parachute is packed right. You're always worried about that. The challenge in our industry, to your point, is it's really hard to grow. It is. I mean, it's just with the competition from passive and a lot of great managers out there, it's it's a it's a difficult business. For us, I think the trepidation was making sure that we did it right, that we had the right terms and the right structure. And for us, that meant on day one, we had to be the majority owners, which meant that each of us would have to pony up some capital. And I think anytime that you're writing checks, and for, for, for some of us on our team, it was in excess of 100% of their net worth, right? So we truly were betting on ourselves. But was there hesitation when the door was actually open? And I'm proud to say no. The team actually looked at this and said, look, we're going to do this. This is the right time in our career. We think this is the right opportunity. I mean, if you think about it from a 30,000-foot view, we're a startup with assets, with a track record, working together for a long period of time. It'd be very difficult to put in a situation where you're having to buy into a company in size, right, in meaningful ownership that that's already established like that. So it was a very unique opportunity. But at the same time, to answer your question on distribution, yes, that crossed our mind. Is it is it the fact that maybe Janice isn't the right home for us? Maybe there's another home that we could be looking at? As, a, as analysts, we're analyzing every situation. Right? And with, with Janice, they're known as primarily a retail distribution house. And we just didn't have the retail vehicles, and nor would we be able to launch them there. So was there a different situation? Um, potentially, but again, getting back to this idea of betting on ourselves, if we're ever going to do it, now is the time. And we just wanted to jump out. Whether the parachute's packed right or not, we were jumping. Right. So so the door opens and they're willing to, you know, have the conversation and, and your team is excited to bet on yourselves. Where do you go from there? I mean, did you did you did you think about valuation, financing, uh the all the logistics that need to be solved for? I because you were in Milwaukee and already had your office space and your systems, I imagine it wasn't as complex as starting from scratch. But um, you know, there's there's probably a decent checklist, and and you may not have knowledge about all the areas that you need to address. Or did did you seek outside help? Did you make it up as you went along? Did you follow the parents' lead? So the conversation started with an acknowledgement that we need to do something, and. Given that they are a public company with a fiduciary duty to shareholders, they can't give the business away. So in their eyes, the best solution for shareholders would be to sell us to another strategic. In our eyes, that's not going to happen. A, and hopefully you can appreciate this from your, from your time at SAI, SEI and even what you're doing today, that's yet another change, probably not welcome. And for those clients that had been with us for the first transition, the second transition, this now being a third in five years, that's a lot. And I think at that point, clients would have just said, okay, enough. We're, <laughs> we're going to throw it in some passive for now and do a search and, and figure this out because you guys are just way too noisy for us. And that was our message to them. Like selling to a strategic isn't going to work. It's not like in, in our eyes, merging two retail funds, right? This is, these are institutional relationships. 
They go through a search. They select a manager that has a specific discipline, discipline and philosophy for a specific reason within the strategy or within their overall portfolio. And as such, you can't just merge into another strategy. They typically do a search. We see it all the time. So we didn't think that was going to work. And they didn't think that we could come up with enough money personally on our side of the equation, which looking at our team and having these conversations. And by the way, being in Milwaukee at this point was somewhat of an advantage. We didn't have to go get conference rooms secretly. We had our own office. We could just have discussions. Uh, and so we could, we could go through this whole process and talk about people's capability and so forth uh, in terms of buying into this business, what we could come up with. And there was, there was a delta we knew between what we could come up with, how we wanted it to be structured amongst all of us, and what Janice would ultimately accept. Right. When you had the conversations with your team, how did you think about equity opportunity and you know who would own what in the new firm or the new iteration of the firm? So at that point, I had worked with Jose for about a decade, and we worked well together. I think we complement each other well. And he asked to be my equal partner. We hadn't really talked about it yet at that point, and I and I thought about it, and I and I know I'm a little bit older than him, but you know that's exactly what my father and Amy did. She was about ten years his junior, and it worked out really well because you have two different people with two different perspectives uh, coming to lead a company. And and I thought, what better partner? You always want to work with people smarter than you. Um, check the box on Jose; he's he's smarter than I am. Uh, and I and I certainly appreciate his diligence and hard work. And this is an opportunity for all these. Like I had been through this before and, and, and been very fortunate. And this was an opportunity for a next generation to take something and again, take it to the next level and be rewarded for all their hard work. So we tried to look at it in ways in, in, in terms of uh, making sure that there was clear delineation in terms of leadership so that decisions are very clear. There's, there's, there's no, uh, you know, infighting, if you will, because when decisions are made, it's done by Jose and myself. So if you want to think about the ownership, the way we thought about it was each Jose and I have about a third of the employee pool. And then we had a third to give to other folks based on their experience, uh, based on the uh, value that they're adding to the firm and, and, and making sure that we spread that not just across the investment team, but also, for example, on compliance operations, make sure we had everything covered so that we had an entire group moving forward together, thinking as owners. Yeah, I, I love that. I love the idea of the broader ownership and at least, you know, letting people feel like they're part of the team and that you're all rowing together um, and that they're not just employees rowing for somebody else's benefit and, and balancing throughout the organization. We see a lot of equity concentrated on investment teams. That's where a lot of the value is driven. So that's somewhat appropriate, but there are other functional legs to the stool that are very important to the success of a business. And so having representation in the ownership there is important as well. Um, on, on, on valuation, right? There's, typically a gap between buyer and seller in any market. How did you go about closing that gap and getting to a deal? That's a great question because valuation typically is what scuttles a deal, right? I mean, you can, you can have two willing parties and if you can't agree, agree upon a price, uh, it doesn't get done. And so from our perspective, we were pragmatic, I think, going in, understanding our own limitations in that respect. Uh, and, and, from Janice's perspective, as I mentioned before, uh, Janice Henderson, I keep saying Janice, but just shortening it, um, they knew that they had to get something in the realm of fair value. Now, realm is squishy, right? There's not necessarily- Fair value is squishy. <laughs> yeah, and it, oh, exactly. And there's not, this is, 
they, they knew that they needed to be in the realm, but realm is broad and vague. So what we did was we asked their permission to try to find additional sources uh, of funds. Uh, and we didn't specifically say private equity, but in, implicitly it was private equity. Didn't know exactly how to go about doing it. So we reached out to our network and there was actually a former Henderson colleague that had been put in a position to find a new home quickly. And they mentioned, you know, you should check out Estancia out of Phoenix. Good people. Uh, they are focused on wealth management, asset management, and then tangential business services. They have both bankers in the form of Takashi and, and, uh, and, and Danny, and then operators in, in Mike. Uh, and so we interviewed them, liked them right away. But of course, you don't want to th- you don't want to marry the first person that you meet, right? So we we talked to a few different parties trying to get a good idea of the lay of the land. And what we appreciate appreciated about Estancia is being that they focus just on you know boutiques, they understood the importance of us being majority owners. And that's when effectively we started with this three-party negotiation, right? We're trying to negotiate terms with Estancia, and at the same time. We collectively need to also uh, negotiate terms with with uh, Janice Henderson, and so we hammered out in April and May of 2019. Sorry, I'm trying to go back now. Uh, a, an agreement between us where we would be the majority owner of the firm, not 51 percent, a little bit more than that, and have the opportunity through paying them back through cash flows and and uh, some favorable economics to get to a larger number, much larger number. And I apologize for being vague, but there are some sensitivities uh, from both uh, Estancia as well as Janice in terms of the specifics. But effectively, the goal was to be 100% employee-owned. That was our vision from the beginning. We wanted to get back to our roots, 100% employee-owned boutique. And Estancia helped us figure out a path to get there where in the end we can do this with like a turn, maybe a little bit more of debt. And that was the goal. We didn't want to put any undue financial pressure on the firm. Uh, we didn't want to be in a situation where you see uh, client losses or a huge market correction and be somewhat stressed. Uh, and they provided that type of a structure. So once we had our agreement done, now it was going with uh, going to Janice and, and trying to figure that out, which uh, was, was, Nice to have these experienced folks behind us, right? All, we're all moving in the same direction, trying to get a deal done uh, with Janice and, and having their experience in going through these transactions before. And actually, having lived through it myself, it was helpful. We knew it would take a while, uh, given that, you know, it's a larger company. They have a, a lot of people that had to, had to have some say in, in this uh, process. Uh, but ultimately, we're able to come to a, a pretty we think fair for all sides deal that we announced in December of 19. Yep. I we're familiar with Estancia. They they're in a similar business line to us. There's some differences, but understand the benefit of having a specialist a three-party deal. We've been part of that process a number of times ourselves. And it does create more complexity, but it also can help facilitate a good outcome. Um, and I think it's great that they bought into the vision that you had. Um, to become 100% employee owned and provide a path, you know, I guess it's going to take a few years, but hopefully you'll be able to to get there. Well, it was interesting. I mentioned our 
announcement was December 3rd, we actually had a an interesting situation where the pandemic started to emerge. And we had, we sort of had this go or no go type decision to make because we were tripping some of the stipulations within the contract on, on market corrections. Uh, but ultimately we all came together, uh, nailed it down and closed on March 17th, which happened to be the day of the global lockdown. Now what's interesting about this and talking about making these decisions uh, for, for just from a management perspective, and you had alluded to this before, uh, that while we were alone, there were a couple of shared services, HR and IT. Now, HR is reasonably easy to outsource. IT, we didn't have any infrastructure. It was all Janice's infrastructure. So we had to, on our dime initially, uh, we got paid back by the company, but we had to build out an IT infrastructure with the hope that it would close. Uh, so it was kind of doubling down on ourselves again to make sure that we could get this done. Uh, but but I'm so glad we did because while we were at Janus, we were on a rotation to get updated in terms of all of our capabilities and we hadn't quite got there yet. And so now we had brand new hardware, software, guts of the infrastructure, and we could seamlessly work from home because that was sort of the idea is that over time, if you have an analyst, again, before the pandemic, it's hard to remember, but you know, working from home wasn't something that we did on a, on a very uh, frequent basis. Uh, but if there was an analyst that said, you know what, I just want to get some quiet and, and crush through these reports. I want to crush through the K, uh, get my notes down and I'll be in tomorrow. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we had that capability, right? And boy, that was prophetic because uh, we started working from home in March. And while we tried to get together a few times in between, we really didn't get back into the office for over a year. That timing is unbelievable. Uh, and I, I remember seeing the release uh, as I was preparing for our conversation being mid-March of 2020. And so you're white knuckling this thing right into the pandemic and then dealing with that right out of the gate. Um, we, what were those first few quarters like um, from a business standpoint and interacting with clients? I mean, here you are, you know, newly independent and, you know, your, your clients are adjusting to the third transition in five years and they're dealing with the pandemic, you're dealing with the pandemic. I mean, was that, what was that like? So our philosophy has always been to run lean, invest in the business, of course, but there's not a lot of fluff at Geneva. And so uh, we made sure that, that we buttoned down to our expenses. And this was really leading up to the deal, but you could kind of see the market go like this, uh, you know, swan dive into uh, March 17th. And if you recall, it was two weeks to bend the curve. Well, our assets had fallen so much. And when we started to get beyond two weeks and four weeks and six weeks to bend the curve, we're kind of like, okay, how long is this going to last? Uh, yet, it was just constant communication with our clients, really putting our nose down and understanding what was happening. We were performing in that in that decline exactly as you would expect, exactly as you would expect from Geneva. So we reiterated that with our clients. And unfortunately, the unprecedented monetary and fiscal stimulus uh, put so much fuel to the fire uh, that, that the market just took off, as, as you know, and and that is not our type of market. That's speculative, liquidity-driven market. But at the same time, it was quite helpful to have that asset inflation, which when you are a, a business model that charges on AUM is helpful. And so we actually emerged uh, in 2020 in a really good spot. And then, of course, 2021 occurred another really good year. The new client situation was a bit more difficult. I think 
institutional consultants had to adjust with not being able to meet for a year to do the on-sites and so forth. We had a, we had a couple, and hopefully you can appreciate this. We had a couple where we were literally doing FaceTime with iPhones, walking through our office to let people know. Yes. That we actually <laughs> office. The office, the virtual office tour, <laughs> the virtual office tour. Uh, and, and so uh, that was an interesting time, but you know, 2021, we're starting to get back into the swing of things, but because of the type of market it was, we didn't see a lot of activity. 2022 was the opposite. What we're now excited about is hopefully we're we're having more of these conversations, more of these on-sites. Uh, this seems to be a really interesting time to be an independent boutique manager that focuses on quality. So we're incredibly excited about you know, the forthcoming years. Yes, I was going to say, you're, you're basically three years in to uh, the new the new independent Geneva, um, what does the business look like? Um, and what are your, what are your goals? You mentioned becoming a hundred percent employee owned in time as you work through that. Um, what about relative to your initial objective when you sold to Henderson around diversification and growth? How do you think about the future of Geneva now that you've come in some respects, full circle? The, the plan really hasn't changed. Uh, it's now we just have control of our own destiny. Now we want to be prudent. We want to be thoughtful and, and diligent in terms of decisions that we make. And I think a good example of that is launching our SMID strategy. Now we launched it basically to give Janice credit. They gave us a million dollars to create a portfolio in SMID back in 2017. That's one that Jose and I manage solely. <clears throat> and effectively, it's a highly concentrated 30, 35 name portfolio of our best ideas, our highest conviction ideas between small bits and no new research necessarily, but it fits a different product slash client category there. The challenge under Janice was we just didn't have the vehicles. And so now we have CITs, we have a mutual fund that we launched post uh, MBO. And and in addition to that, you know, we're, we're, we've launched CITs and other strategies. We're looking at tangential, call it, easy to digest from a client perspective uh, strategies uh, such as microcap. That's been brought up before by our clients. We've looked at it. There's nothing that we're doing today, but it is something that has been brought up. And we think something that potentially could be not only a very easy adjacency, but something that could be complementary to small cap. That's actually how our small cap started. It was a, it was a bench for mid cap. And then we just formalized the bench and it became our small cap strategy. So in a very similar way, we have some of these names that are a bit too young, uh, do we want to formalize that into something, understanding there's very limited capacity? We do manage an all-cap strategy. That is a strategy that uh, started way back when in mid. I mentioned that our, our roots are kind of in the high net worth back in 1987. A lot of those clients are still with us 35 years later. So they're up there in age. And uh, you know, over time, for these taxable clients, they didn't necessarily want to sell Starbucks when we sold it in mid-cap right? because of tax consequences. And so we had this other composite form, which ultimately became our all cap, which is a concentrated uh, all cap strategy. Now that not a lot of institutional interest right now in something like that, but again, uh, it's it's we we have real dollars in there, we have clients in there. Is that something that could be something bigger at some point potentially? But we haven't really focused on it from a marketing perspective. And then we're always just looking for ways in which we can enhance our lineup. Uh, we always look for opportunistic hires in terms of looking for great analysts. Uh, you know, we hire usually ahead of, of growth um, every few years, whether we need it or not, just to continue to build on our uh, on our team and our capabilities. 
So again, uh, looking for the future, the plan really hasn't changed, but um, we have a very long time horizon to be patient with implementing that. Yeah, that's terrific. And it, it really appreciate all the insight and perspective you've shared on this. I, before we sign off, just one broader question. Thinking back on the MBO process and what you might have learned or been taken by surprise on, is there anything you would have done differently or is there any, you know, kind of imperatives that you would pass along to somebody else who's at the other end of the process considering bringing up the conversation? With the first transaction, we did not negotiate effectively a bonus pool for our team that was quantitative in nature. There was a discretionary component to it. And while there was some loose guidelines around profitability and things like that growth, um, we learned the second time. And that has been a really good tool for us in terms of transparency with our with our analysts, right? Here, if you if you perform in these metrics, here is our overall bonus pool, and here's what you're going to get um, in, in terms of you know percentage of base and so forth. So that is that is something that I would definitely encourage people, whether they're getting acquired by a larger firm or they're going off on their own, just make sure that they have that bonus pool sort of quantitative in nature that uh, for us, it's a percentage of EBITDA uh, that obviously flexes with the market. You can enjoy the, the the fruits of growth, but also it protects you a bit on the downside. And then I would also say, if you truly believe in your philosophy and process and you see a window of opportunity, don't wait because those windows can close. And I think as I followed Janice Henderson and some of my colleagues, uh, that, that I truly enjoyed working with. Uh, you know, if you look at what happened to Perkins shortly after this, uh, it was something that I think would have been our fate. And so had we not jumped at the opportunity, I think we wouldn't be sitting here today. Wow, fascinating. Well, that's great. I, that's great advice. And, and um, it's always interesting to think back and reflect on um, different aspects of, of the past. Um, I know you're excited about the future, but I know you're also very thoughtful and, and um, and considerate about things like that. So appreciate you sharing that. My pleasure. Scott, this has been great. I, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I've always enjoyed speaking with you. And um, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, and sharing some more color on, on your MBO. Likewise. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. 